For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text MONICA to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here midweek hump day. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Don't forget to check me out on social media. On Instagram, I'm at Monica Crowley underscore, and on Twitter and Truth Social, I am at Monica Crowley. Also, you can send me an email. Let me know what's on your mind. The email address is Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Again, Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. All right. Today, we are going to do something very special. We're going to do a deep dive into the COVID pandemic, the corruption of public health, and the collusion of big governments, big pharma, and big tech to spread really big lies about the virus and the so-called vaccines sold as fixes for the virus. Today, we're gonna go deep into this very dark story with one of the most courageous truth tellers about the entire evil chapter, which continues to this very day. Well, I am absolutely delighted to welcome Dr. Asim Mahotra, Dr. Mahotra is a renowned British cardiologist. He is a public health advocate. He is the author of several books. And in this era of highly politicized and, to my view, dangerous, because it's so politicized, medical research and corrupt public health messaging, he is one of the very few, too few, brave people, doctors, willing to stand up for the facts, the science, and the truth. 
You can find him on Twitter at Dr. Asim Mahotra, and I am absolutely thrilled to welcome him to the podcast now. Hi, Asim. Hi, Monica. It's a pleasure to speak to you today. Well, it is an honor and a privilege to have you here. And like I said, you are one of the few voices out there um, willing to speak to the data and the truth and the science. We've been lectured a lot over the last three years now about the science. And Dr. Fauci here in the United States has often said, I am the science. Um, But the science has often been disregarded in uh, service of political agendas that put the general public in danger. And that's why I wanted to have you here today, because you are one of the too few who has been willing to stand up and speak truth to power. And when I say power, I mean big government, big pharma, big tech, all working hand in glove on this agenda throughout this entire pandemic. So it's a delight to have you with us, Asim, and we've got a lot to cover with you today. But I'd like to start with you because your story is so fascinating. You were born in India to two medical doctors. So I suppose the healing arts are literally and figuratively in your blood, right? Yeah, no, absolutely, Monica. No, thank you for that introduction. And um, yeah, just a little bit about me. So I was um, born in, um, in 1977 in Delhi, India, uh, the capital of the country. Um, my, I had an older brother, uh, who was two years older than me, and both my parents uh, were doctors. And when I was about a year old, they permanently settled in uh, England, the United Kingdom, uh, in the northwest of England. Ultimately, I, I grew up in a place called Manchester, which many of your listeners will probably be familiar with from its famous soccer team, Manchester United. So, uh, yeah, so that, that I grew up in Manchester. Uh, both my parents were general practitioners. And then I went to university in Scotland, in Edinburgh. Um, It was one of my dreams to go to Edinburgh Medical School, partly because it was one of the most famous medical schools and oldest medical schools um, in the world. And uh, and after I I decided quite early on that I wanted to specialize in cardiology specifically, Um, one, because I was fascinated with the heart in in general. Um, Another reason was... I knew also that we had a lot of work to do in medicine to try and combat heart disease, which is still the biggest killer in the Western world. Um, There was probably to some degree a slightly, uh, there was an influence on an emotional level because I had a grandfather, my mum's father, he died prematurely at the age of 60 from a very rare condition called amyloidosis. He was a very fit guy and essentially there was nothing that could be done for him. And within, um, you know, within a few months of being super fit and playing tennis, he, he basically went into heart failure and had a cardiac arrest and died. And then sadly, my older brother, when I was 11, he was 13, um, he developed my, viral myocarditis. Now he had Down syndrome and, you know, people, kids with Down syndrome do tend to have a, a slightly dysfunctional immune system. So that may have played a role, but just a simple bug that he had that he caught suddenly uh essentially um the immune system attacked his heart and you know within within a week or so he went into crashing heart failure and had a cardiac arrest and that was obviously very um very traumatic for the whole family um i didn't see my parents smile for about two years and i mean that's understandable i think nobody should be outliving their own child so but you know but he because of his down syndrome because both my parents were doctors i think that certainly i it shaped me as a human being um, I was very lucky to have two parents who were, you know, two of the most wonderful, compassionate, kindest people I've ever known. 
very different in terms of their personalities. My mum was very spiritual, my dad less so. Um, but, and this is, I, I, I think probably I've got that from them. You know, the one thing I observed from the way that they conducted their lives and what they taught me was your primary duty and responsibility uh, in your life is always to the community. So I chose medicine. Um, my father, interestingly, one of the reasons he settled in the UK is that he was fascinated uh, by the National Health Service, which was initially became, uh, you know, it, it began in the UK in, in 1948. Um, it was actually a Labour MP called Anya and Bevan, who was really, really the founder behind the National Health Service. And it was on the principle, essentially, which is something I believe very strongly in, Monica, that, um, you know, healthcare or people having access to healthcare, this should be a basic human right and should not be dictated on people's um, ability to pay. And that's one of the reasons my dad stayed in the UK to practice uh, within the NHS, but also one of the things that he realized very early on, certainly in the in the late 70s, early 80s, when he came to the UK, is that there wasn't really any good structure in place in India to help um, look after, uh, deal with, manage uh, children with special needs. And my brother had Down syndrome. So he was he was really impressed with the system that was in place in the UK. So I think a number of those factors kept him in the UK, despite the fact that he was a very a very prolific political activist. He was a student leader. He was actually arrested by the Prime Minister of India twice and put in jail, Indira Gandhi, because he called out government corruption. Um, and in fact, when he left India initially as a junior doctor, he was told, you know, go away for a couple of years and then come back. And he was, um, I think he was such a talented figure in terms of politics, and he got involved in medical politics in the UK, you know, that his friend said that if he had continued in India, he either would have become prime minister or would have been assassinated. So that's just to give you an idea of the kind of wow. parent he was, but a very, very principled man. Um, yes. And then, and then I, I specialized in cardiology. I specifically subspecialized in interventional cardiology. So that essentially is keyhole heart surgery. And I did that for my early career. Um, I enjoyed doing that. It's, you know, put, putting stents into people having heart attacks. It was, you know, very satisfying work, tough work, but certainly um, very rewarding. And then I, around sort of 2011, 2012, I started to develop an interest more down the prevention side, partly because as a practicing doctor within the NHS, I could see over a number of years since I qualified in 2001, there was more and more stress on the system. There were more and more people coming in with chronic diseases. There were more and more people on multiple medications. And I and I saw I thought that if we didn't do something to combat this, one, our healthcare system is going to collapse, but two, also it's going to make our lives very difficult in terms of morale to work in as doctors because our patients weren't getting better. So I went on a journey to try and understand primarily around the root causes of heart disease and whether we got it wrong on the science, but essentially, um, you know, quite quickly uh, began to get a greater appreciation. A moniker of the the factors at the roots of healthcare problems around the world were essentially commercial influence of industries like the food industry, like the pharmaceutical industry, who were distorting information deliberately for profit. But the end result of that was that people were getting sicker mentally and physically, and and that has continued. So I've campaigned for many years um, on various issues about how to tackle obesity, for example, but also obviously relevant to our talk, um, even prior to the pandemic, 
was the fact that we have a massive problem with overmedicated populations, certainly in the Western world, in the States in particular, in the UK, where one, just to give your listeners some perspective, uh, one very eminent physician, the co-founder of the Cochrane Collaboration, Peter Gosher, estimates from his own analysis that prescribed medications are the third most common cause of death after heart disease and cancer globally. So that's a big problem. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a public health crisis. And uh, that's something that needs addressing head on. You know, we all start our careers with stars in our eyes and very idealistic about our particular fields. And the healing arts is uh, perhaps e even more attracts even more idealistic people because you, you enter medicine because you want to heal people. And yet, you know, over time, as, as you go through a career in a certain area like medicine, you realize that everything that you thought was true may not be true. Things are not as they seem to appear. And it does seem that there are so many forces, including big pharma, that have this incentive in keeping people sick. It's almost like, you know, the, the old joke about the exterminator that comes to your house to rid your home of uh, carpenter ants and they leave sugar so that more ants come so that you continue to call on them to rid your home of, of the ants. And it seems like there, there are so many forces at work that are designed to keep people uh, suboptimal health and sick so that they keep coming back for the drugs and other things uh, to keep these industries you know, as profitable as possible. Absolutely, Monica. You hit the nail on the head there. I think one of the, and this is not about conspiracy theories, I'd say this is the way business is done, but I think what has been lacking and still is lacking amongst the in the minds, certainly amongst probably the majority of the medical profession and certainly the majority of the general public, is they don't fully acknowledge or understand the system failures that are leading to a situation where they are being they are making decisions about their health, which is not actually in their best interest. And uh, but if we take a step back. I think first and foremost, people need to acknowledge and understand that the, the pharmaceutical industry, for example, is there has a, has a legal obligation. And we'll, talk, we'll come into the law aspect of it a little bit later because that needs to be addressed head on. Is they have oh, a legal oh, or fiduciary obligation to, to produce profit for their shareholders, but right. they don't have any legal obligation to give you the best treatment. And what happens is they have, uh, over time, Monica, had increasing both visible and invisible power uh, and if you have an entity that has so much control over medicine, for example, or over our lives that isn't functioning for the human interest, then it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that's going to ultimately have a negative impact on society. People may suddenly stop and say, hold on a minute, what about doctors? What about the regulator? But that's the problem, right? So, for example, the FDA in, in this country and the MHRA, our regulator in the UK, gets the majority of their funding from the drug industry itself. And that's a huge conflict of interest. And what that means is that, you know, they are more likely to approve drugs um, which aren't necessarily going to be beneficial to patients and to public health. And we've seen that increasingly happen over time. So I think one of the things that people need to start from understanding, even in terms of their own health, is that a lot of the choices people make are structured by forces beyond their immediate control. So what does that mean? Well, 
if you take that into the consultation room between doctor and patient, doctors are making clinical decisions quite often on information that has been biased and corrupted by the pharmaceutical industry, which ultimately means that there is a exaggerated view of the benefits and the safety of a drug. And then that information isn't relayed to the patient. So they're not being fully informed. And ultimately, if this is what's happening, at best, you're going to get suboptimal outcome for your patient. And at worst, you're going to do harm. So until we address this head on at the root, this situation is only going to continue to get worse. Yes. And so many people who are just not familiar with medicine or the latest uh, drugs or pharma, they will just take whatever their doctor prescribes. And so you end up getting this, this uh, spiral of just, you know, somebody's not feeling well for a whole range of reasons. They go see a doctor, a doctor writes a script, and now this person is on this medication, which is having all kinds of effects in their body. And it, it is a very dangerous cycle. You are right. But you know what, um, Asim, this is a very appropriate segue into the COVID pandemic. And so many, there are so many issues related to this to discuss with you, including your own personal story and your journey through this to the truth, which we will get to. Asim, please stand by. There's so much more to get to with you. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't, and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. Flu season is here, and I trust Field of Greens to help me stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast and tastes so good. It's really delicious, guys, and you'll feel better with more energy and you'll notice your skin, hair, and nails will look healthier too. I certainly noticed that in me since I started taking Field of Greens. If you don't always eat right and exercise, join me and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. We're back with Dr. Asim Mahotra. Let's start at the beginning here. Can you bring us back to the moment when you first heard of the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2? And what was your first impression of this virus? Yeah, I think it was very similar to, uh, to many people, Monica. So this is, we're talking about early 2020. I can't remember. Uh, we went into lockdown in the UK, if I'm not wrong. I think it was March 2020 when it was announced. So of course, I think at the very beginning, like many people, it was something we were not familiar with. It was a, a new situation. Uh, a lot of people uh, get their 
understanding of, uh, or got certainly got their understanding and still do get their understanding around the coronavirus and COVID from the mainstream media. Uh, and I think most of us probably remember seeing these images coming through from China and Italy um, of, you know, uh, people, essentially, there was, you know, mass number of deaths. The reporting suggested that this was a virus that was very, very deadly, especially for the elderly. And of course, people were in a state of fear, understandably so. So I remember that quite well. One of the things I did quite early on, though, however, is I, um, you know, I was able to, l- reading the the data, looking at who who the people that were dying, it was quite clear that the average age of death, certainly in Italy, was 81. Most of the people that died had 2.7 conditions. I ended up writing a book about it later. That's why I know this information inside out. But I was one of the first people, certainly in the UK, if not globally, who was able to try and make the link between obesity and uh, poor COVID outcomes. And the reason that I wanted to make noise around that is that through my work and my research and my advocacy around obesity, I knew that the risk factors associated with people dying from COVID can actually be rapidly improved purely from dietary changes within a few weeks. And I was very frustrated that certainly in, in the UK, when our Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced a lockdown and there was a, um, you know, there was a message that was repeated, which was stay at home, um, you know, protect the NHS and save lives. He should have, there should have been a regular public health message around this is an opportunity for the population to improve their health. And one of the things you need to do is avoid ultra processed foods and sugar and start eating real food. And you're probably going to be in a much better situation to deal with COVID uh, if and when you get it. So I'd started uh, that process in 2020. And, um, and, then, and then the situation obviously evolved uh, around, you know, I was asked to advise the Secretary for Health, Matt Hancock, because I got a lot of publicity in the mainstream media on this. Uh, I wrote a book about it. And then obviously towards the end of 2020, we get the announcement about the vaccine being developed, et cetera, to combat COVID. And I was actually one of the first to have the vaccine because I volunteered in a vaccine center uh, for the elderly that were on the first batch of people that were, you know, advised to take the vaccine. So I had I had two doses. I wasn't particularly concerned, Monica, about myself because I knew I was in the lower risk category because I was in my early 40s. But one of the reasons I took it, which I've, you know, I've taken many vaccines throughout my life, um, was because I was under the belief that it would um, likely stop the spread and protect my patients. So that was one of the reasons I had it. I had a father that was recently widowed. I lost my mum, you know, only a, a year and a half before. And, um, you know, I think he was uh, like many of old, older people. I mean, he was in his, you know, early 70s at that stage. Um, they were understandably more fearful and concerned about COVID because it was certainly the, the initial strain of the virus, the, the ancestral Wuhan strain did seem to be particularly devastating for older people. Um, I think partly because of the situation he was in, he probably had a also an exaggerated fear about me, his only surviving son. So there was probably a little bit of an emotional type discussion. I, m- I remember saying to him, listen, I'd rather wait, etc. But he was insistent that I get it done, come and help out in the vaccine center, maybe you'll have leftovers, etc. So I end up having it done quite early on. And then um, a month later, I went on Good Morning Britain. So this is February 2020, because I've you know, I'm a, a well-known public health advocate, respected in terms of my work in the UK. So I constantly get asked to go on 
uh, you know, the BBC and Good Morning Britain and, you know, a lot of my research and work I've managed to get into the mainstream news. So I've built relationships with with journalists and broadcasters over the years. So they come to me quite often and ask me if I would speak on a particular topic. And I'd convinced a famous film director, Gurinder Chudder, who's well known for movies like Bend It Like Beckham and one recently on Bruce Springsteen called Blinded by the Light. So I'd convinced her to take the vaccine because she was receiving a lot of information which didn't really stack up um, around the vaccine, things like microchips and it's going to depopulation agenda, all this kind of stuff. And I said to her, listen, you know, she knows that I've been one of the biggest advocates calling out big farmers misdemeanors, if you like, in the last decade. You know, I've even tried to launch several public inquiries into pharma. And I said to her, listen, of all the pharmacological interventions out there, vaccines, traditional vaccines are still by far the safest. No drug is completely safe but they're still the safest. So I went on Good Morning Britain and I said, listen, I understand where the vaccine hesitancy is coming from, but at the same time, um, I would say traditional vaccines, I still believe this to be true, Monica, they're, they're still the safest. And uh, and then uh, over hey, a few Can I stop to- you there, Asim, yeah, and just say, sure. you use the, the phrase traditional vaccines, but that's not what these mRNA shots are. They are not traditional vaccines. So were they... They, they, they told us that they were mRNA, this new technology, but they sold it to us as a traditional vaccine. And the definition of traditional vaccine is something that stops the transmission and spread of a virus, of an infectious disease. And yet, and they sold it to us in those terms in you know late 20 early 2021 in order to get mass uptake of these vaccines but that's not what they are and in fact here in the US the CDC changed the definition of vaccine not once not twice but three times to accommodate what these shots are so did you have that understanding very early on that this is this new technology but you still you still sort of understood it as a traditional vaccine. Is that what you're saying? No, Monica, I didn't. And you're absolutely right what you just said. But at the time, certainly, I, it wasn't something that I was paying a lot of attention to uh, right. at all. And therefore, I was not, you know, and again, I'm a cardiologist, so I don't have... Um, you know, I've had to learn a lot. We'll come on to that around, around the vaccines. But um, it's not something that I normally look at. It's not part of my... Um, you know, uh, expertise. I, at that time, for example, hadn't realized that traditional vaccines take five to 10 years to develop. But having said all that, a lot of the stuff around the vaccine, from, and I remember quite correctly, people sending me information and some people not having the vaccines and even falling out with some of my friends, is that it was speculation, right? A lot of the reasons behind people at the uh, at the beginning not having it was either speculation or intuition. And that's fine. I get it. I understand it. Um, but that didn't add up to me. I was actually more skeptical about the efficacy. And one of the reasons I was skeptical about the efficacy is flu vaccine, for example, is not very good. It's not very efficacious. This was a a vaccine for coronavirus. I was like, okay, well, hopefully there'll be some slight benefit, Um, but I could not perceive or envisage uh, thinking about any, and and I don't think anybody could really, to be honest at the beginning, Monica, uh, expect or think that this would cause the kind of devastating harm, we'll come on to that, that it has done. Right. Right. And, and I would just add in that even one of the co-inventors of the vaccine or, the, or certainly the technology behind the vaccine, the mRNA vaccines, Robert Malone, he took it himself. So I think a lot of people didn't know what was really going to happen. And I, and I understand for certainly people at low risk, they did the right thing to wait. 
I was in a slightly different position as a doctor because I was led to believe that this is going to stop transmission. And even if it stops transmission slightly and doesn't do any harm, ultimately, when you max vaccinate tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people, you're going to see a benefit, right, overall, if it wasn't going to do any harm. And that was my understanding at that time. Right. Um, then we move on. Uh, and a couple of things happened. One was um, a friend of mine who's a cardiologist who I respect, who I've worked with, one of the smartest guys, certainly in cardiology in the country. Um, he met me, he's in his late 30s. Um, for he, We just met up for a catch-up walk, coffee, something like that in April 2021. And he said to me, Asim, listen to me, I've got to tell you. I said, what is it? He said, I'm not taking the vaccine. I said, okay. Uh, and I'm very open-minded, right? I'm curious. I'm always somebody that wants to engage with people, understand where they're coming from, listening to them. I'm not judgmental. So, I, and also I respect him for his scientific integrity. So I said, well, what are the reasons? And he said, listen, he goes, I could be wrong. Uh, one, obviously I'm low risk, but he said, I looked at the supplementary appendix of Pfizer's original randomized control trial. So this is the, the trial that, you know, 40,000 people that led to the approval of the vaccine. And he said, in supplementary appendix, it seemed, um, there's four cardiac arrests in the vaccine group and one in the placebo group. And he says, it may just be spurious. It may just be random. It may be a coincidence, but if this is a genuine signal, we're going to see a problem. And I hope I'm wrong. So I said, okay, fine, mate. I, I get it. And I, I appreciate it. Thank you for sharing that with me. And I kind of just, you know, it was somewhere in my mind, but I kind of just dismissed it. And then in July, 2021, so we moved forward a few more months. Uh, my father, who, you know, was a retired general practitioner, honorary vice president of the BMA, super fit guy, uh, considered one of the healthiest guys in his community. There's no family history in his family of heart disease, nothing like that. He called me and he complained of some chest discomfort. And, you know, in medicine, most of your diagnosis, if you're a good doctor, 80% of your diagnosis you get from the history, from the discussion with the patient. And what he described to me sounded like it was cardiac and it wasn't severe, but I said, dad, you need to go to hospital. You need to call 999. And um, we had a bit of back and forth. And eventually he called some neighbors first and foremost. He was reluctant to call an ambulance himself. I was in London. He was in Manchester. And, uh, and then I went for a shower, ready to get on a train to go up to be with him. And I called back and there was no answer. And ultimately his neighbors answered the phone. And one and both of them were doctors. Um, and the, the, she was hysterical. And she said, I see my dad's had a cardiac arrest doing CPR on him. Now I went into full-blown cardiology mode. Um, you know, this is, I've worked in hospitals. I've led cardiac arrest teams. I'm probably considered to be someone who's very calm under pressure. And I was able to just go into that mode and say, listen, you witnessed it. Um, you've called the ambulance. You know, he's lucky that his, this has all happened in this circumstance. The ambulance is supposed to come within eight minutes. He will, he will get through this. We'll shock him out of it. And unfortunately, the ambulance didn't show up for 30 minutes. They FaceTimed me. It was a, a flat line. We call a systole, nothing to shock. He was gone. And, um, and then after that, Monica, I, you know, obviously it was extremely traumatic but it didn't this it didn't make sense to me the whole circumstance he had what we call a six out of ten in terms of discomfort he wasn't an extremist he didn't sound like he was having a heart attack but it sounded like a bit of maybe the first manifestation of some called unstable angina maybe there was a blockage in his arteries and he was getting a bit of discomfort to then suddenly have a cardiac arrest is also slightly unusual in the circumstance but that didn't make sense um so the whole everything around how he had his cardiac arrest was odd it wasn't these things can happen but it was odd so I ordered a post-mortem and his post-mortem findings were not what I expected. I thought maybe he had a small blockage somewhere. You know, this is my area of research. So we call this what we call plaque rupture. So what many people don't know, a bit of interesting information for your listeners as well, 
is when people have heart attacks, about 86% of them happen at narrowings that are not severely blocked. So people can have normal blood flow when they're doing exercise, but these narrowings, imagine like a pimple bursting out of the blue, suddenly blocking off the artery. So I thought we'd find like a small blockage or a small, what we call plot rupture, a small clot. And then he's had an electrical disturbance of the heart, which again is random. It doesn't have to be related to the size of the heart attack. And he's unfortunately had a cardiac arrest. And it, you know, that's, and then obviously the ambulance didn't come. We couldn't shock him out of it in time. But that's not what we found. One, there was no heart attack. There was no evidence of any heart muscle damage, but two of his arteries had severe blockages in them. And that was odd because I knew his cardiac history. I had, we'd routinely, because he'd had some unusual pains a few years ago, which were not heart related, just done a, a general check on him. His blood flow was normal. Um, you know, he had suffered from high blood pressure, but that was it. He'd improved his diet since then. If anything, whatever was there, which was mild a few years ago, should have either stayed the same or got better. It shouldn't certainly have resulted in two severe blockage arteries. So Again, that didn't make sense, and I couldn't figure out what it was. Um, I could think, well, the only explanation at that time, Monica, was was my dad severely stressed psychologically. It's the only explanation I could, you know, could muster. But it didn't sit well with me that as as the cause. And then a number of different data points then emerged about three months later, which then started to paint a very disturbing picture of the mRNA vaccines. The first was a Times journalist contacted me because there had been reports from Scotland of a 25% increase in heart attacks, which were unexplained. Uh, within about a week or two of that, there was an abstract published in the journal Circulation where a cardiac surgeon called Stephen Gundry in the States had basically found that managing some of his patients, many of his patients, after the mRNA vaccines, either Pfizer or Moderna, there was a huge increase in markers of what we call coronary artery, heart artery inflammation within two to 10 weeks of having the vaccines, which increased their risk of having a heart attack, which was a baseline of around 11% of five years to 25%, which is massive. It's a huge jump, right? So I was like, mm -hmm. okay, well, this is very, very worrying. Again, it's only one piece of data, but now we've got the issue coming through from Scotland. And then the third, for me, the icing on the cake that was like, okay, now we need to look into this properly is a cardiologist from a very prestigious British institution, a whistleblower, contacted me and said that a group of researchers had accidentally found using coronary imaging techniques that the mRNA vaccine was causing inflammation of the heart arteries in vaccinated, but not there in the unvaccinated. So for me, it was like, okay, well, this is now looking very ugly. I then contacted GB News. I had a, I've been doing a lot of work with them on various issues. And I said, listen, there's something that I'd like to discuss here. Can we discuss it? So in October last year, 2021, I went to GB News and said, listen, there's bits of data here. It's disturbing. It's not definitive. It needs investigating. And then at that point, it was interesting. I, behind the scenes, had a huge backlash where um, I won't name them, but let's just say a very prestigious medical establishment body that I'm affiliated with got a number of anonymous complaints from doctors who said I was spreading you know, an anti-vaxxer, I was bringing the medical profession into disrepute, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So that was a little bit stressful. And I spent a few weeks having to respond to that. And then they ended up giving me a warning. I don't know what for, to essentially just watch myself. And I thought, you know what, I can't be as open and explicit as I would like to be just through social media. So I thought, well, hold on, there's, a, there's, a, there's an issue here. I'm going to now spend the next several months critically appraising the data, writing a narrative for people to understand what's going on, how this all happened, um, and look at it properly in detail to try and give people an understanding, and we'll get to that in a minute, of what the actual benefits of the vaccine are versus the harms, 
So there's an informed consent discussion to go to, to happen. And I end up publishing a paper, which you're probably aware of a couple of months ago in the International Journal of Insulin Resistance, which essentially concludes that the situation is so bad, Monica, based upon very high quality data that the mRNA vaccine needs to be suspended for everybody because the harms are unprecedented and the benefits certainly are, are very, very small, certainly now with the Omicron variant. And that's what I've been now advocating for and, and making noise about and, and trying to get you know, political engagement in uh, to make sure this, this all stops immediately. Because and it's, right now, the situation is so bad, Monica, that we have got essentially a, a vaccine that is giving hardly any benefit to anyone but is associated with significant risk of harm. And it's nothing short, you know, it's not deliberate, but if when people look at that data and they read the paper and they understand what's happened, describing it as criminal is an understatement. Asim, please hang tight. We're gonna be right back with you. But first, I wanna take a moment to welcome a new sponsor, Worthy. There's a new easy way to get money for that diamond jewelry that you are not wearing. It's called Worthy. Worthy is a platform that can get you up to two or three times as much money as a pawn shop or local jewelry shop will offer you with zero risk. Worthy puts your jewelry in front of a worldwide network of professional buyers, people who will bid against each other for your diamonds. And Worthy makes it so easy. Free shipping, free insurance coverage, free professional grading and evaluation, and you are in control from start to finish. If your price isn't met, you don't have to sell and you get your piece back, no charge. And now for a limited time, you'll get an extra $100 when your jewelry sells for over $1,500. All you have to do is register at worthy.com slash Monica. Again, that's worthy.com slash Monica. Get more for your diamond jewelry at worthy.com slash Monica. Worthy, it's a better way to cash in on that hidden asset in your jewelry box. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back with Dr. Asim Mahotra. There's so much that you just said there, Asim. And first of all, please accept uh, on behalf of my entire audience, our deepest condolences on the loss of your father. And it's just, it's so tragic, this loss and so unnecessary uh, to lose your father in this way, um, given the fact that, you know, the, the deep corruption in public health on both sides of the Atlantic. So we are so sorry about that. You know, I had talked to a friend of mine who's an MD at Johns Hopkins, and I was talking to him last summer, so the summer of 21, and we were having a very similar conversation where there were starting to be some cracks in the wall and some data, even if it were just anecdotal, coming out about certain cardiac events with regard to these mRNA vaccines. And I said to him, well, Johns Hopkins has to be doing all kinds of research on these shots. And there was dead silence, Asim. And then he said, nope, we're not doing any. And I said, what are you talking about? You're a research institution. And he said, we're not doing any research. And in fact, there's very little to no research being done in the United States. It's all coming out of Germany, Israel, and I guess the UK was starting to do some at the time, but he said here in the US, there really isn't any. So there was this huge suppression of any kind of research or investigation into any of this while they were channeling everybody into these shots. 
So, so let me take a step back with you, Asim, because at the very beginning of the pandemic, you said that you noticed as a cardiologist that the vast majority of people who were dying, so-called from the virus, also had all of these serious comorbidities like heart disease, obesity, et cetera. So you were one of the few noticing these correlations. And yes, there was high mortality. People were dying from the virus at the time, but there were all of these other mitigating factors as well. Also early on, so many doctors were putting these patients on remdesivir, which ended up drowning many of these patients in their own lung fluid. They were putting them on ventilators, which a lot of people say accelerated death in a lot of these patients. And then of course you had the blacklisting and smearing of known therapeutics that were cheap and accessible like ivermectin and hydroxy and so on. So obviously all of this was being done to channel as many people across the world as possible into these shots. Did you see that happening at the time? And did you recognize it for what it was, for what it really was? Yeah, I think so, Monica, to some degree in the sense that I was very frustrated that there wasn't an emphasis when we knew that the dietary changes, for example, is something everybody can do, um, you know, and, and it was a really important message to get to the public. It was being, it wasn't getting the attention that it deserved. And I think that an element of that probably behind that was that, well, I, you know, I wonder whether some of it is just pure incompetence as well. Uh, Monica, I think some of it's incompetence. I think the problem is that the what many people don't understand is that over time, medicine has been captured more and more by these commercial influences. Even universities that are supposed to be represent the moral conscience of society and guardians of the truth get most of their funding from pharma. So I think that people probably turned a blind eye to cheaper, more effective interventions, and, some, and that can include things like ivermectin. Uh, because it wasn't something that would get those scientists, it wouldn't be something that they would be rewarded for, right. and uh, whether that was conscious or subconscious. And uh, ultimately, yeah, we, we missed a huge opportunity. I'm sure, you know, wh when I looked at data in the UK, ultimately we had about 175,000 deaths from COVID. Only 10% of those actually had COVID alone on the death certificate. Right. And what that means is that this poor metabolic health, if you like, which are conditions primarily driven by excess body fat uh, were behind the, most of those deaths. Um, and ultimately, we know that 90%, for example, of the deaths from COVID happen in countries where more than half the population are overweight or obese, which of course includes the UK and the USA. But interestingly as well, the very same reasons that the, the same problems we're discussing now around the corporate capture of public health were the very same underlying root causes behind the vulnerability to COVID in the first place, which have not been addressed for decades, which is the food industry influencing dietary guidelines, the food environment, what kids get in school, what food served in hospitals, you know, uh, and, there's, and the pharmaceutical industry as well, where we've got this over-medicated population where people are being deceived into taking pills that have very, very marginal benefits for them at best come with side effects and where there's no informed consent and they don't have being empowered to be prescribed relatively simple interventions to improve their lifestyle. So if all of this had been addressed before the pandemic, the pandemic wouldn't have been anywhere close to be as devastating as it was. 
And, you know, the lockdown discussion is another, another topic altogether, but certainly the threshold to allow a lockdown to happen wouldn't have been reached at all. And actually, we would have just focused on protecting the elderly and the most vulnerable and society overall would be in a much better place. Ah, but in fact, but we're then, not. But then the yeah. political agenda would not have been served if if we went down that route. And as you know, the Great Barrington Declaration said very early on, some very prominent doctors uh, made that recommendation that we should be isolating the vulnerable and the elderly and infirm, and everybody else should take their precautions but live their life. And of course, that didn't suit the larger uh, agenda, which is basically to re-engineer the entire Western world into a more Chinese kind of model. But that's a conversation for another day. But they took all of that common sense, science and evidence-based uh, conversation and threw it right out the window. Were you, by the way, uh, Asim, were you shocked, uh, I guess in retrospect, were you shocked by how easily and freely everybody just complied with the new restrictions and the mandates and the lockdowns? I mean, everybody just gladly embraced the surrendering of their most basic freedoms. I wasn't that surprised. In some ways, Monica, so there's good and bad from that, right? So if the government is doing their job properly, in fact, we want societies to flourish where people trust their governments if the government are doing the right thing. So I think that's a good situation to be in. If your public figures are putting your interests first, public interests first, and then and public then trusts their governments and authorities that are there to put your interests first, that's fine. Who cares, right? The problem is that people trusted a government that were not competent, governments that were not competent to deal with the situation properly and certainly didn't genuinely have the interests put the interests of the public first. That's and right. ultimately, there was collusion with these big industries. And I've seen this over the years with my advocacy in tackling obesity. I remember one very senior person in what we call Public Health England, which is a, you know, a government body that is supposed to be representing public health and, and be transparent and open and independent. When I met this individual and said, you know, for a coffee, because I've been, you know, um, calling out, for example, the fact that our dietary guidelines in the UK had a, a guide, which on the guide had junk food on it. It had, you know, sodas and cakes and that kind of thing. And <laughs> What's I said wrong this, with that, Asim? Oh, well, well, listen, there's nothing I, wrong with those treats. But it should, no, no. So there's nothing wrong with it. No, there's nothing wrong with it. But it shouldn't be peering on this is what represents a healthy diet, right? Right. That's right. the issue. Right. So, so, so absolutely. So this is the, the this was a message. And I said, what, why is this even on there? Why should it even be on the healthy diet plate? And the response was, Asim, you've got to understand one of the biggest contributors to our economy is the food industry. This is coming from an independent scientist, right? People are going to take that, look at that plate and think that it's acceptable and this is part of a healthy diet when it, of course it's not. So that tells you that ultimately that there has been a public health capture. But this person said it in a very blasé way. So they had obviously crossed the line of in my views, of, of morality when it comes to medical information a long, long time ago, and the line had disappeared for them. Yes. But this is, so, 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 so this is, you know, I've got no issues with people making money doing the right thing, with, with industries selling you products where they're paying the transactor to know exactly what they're getting. Uh, but I do have a problem with, with, with industries or people that deliberately lie for profit. And for me as a doctor, when it affects people's mental and physical health, that's a line that's just something that, you know, 
it's too far gone. People, if and, people and very dangerous that. when people lose faith in public health and public health officials, uh, you've got a sky is falling syndrome, and that's incredibly dangerous. Okay, we've got to hit another quick break, but much more on this important conversation straight ahead. First, though, I want to take a moment to welcome a new sponsor, Nutrafol. Ladies, we all want to look and feel our absolute best, and our hair is such an important part of that, right? Our hair is our crowning glory. But did you know that 30 million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair? If you're among them, please know that you are not alone and that there is a solution you can trust to deliver real results. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, clinically shown to improve your hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. Nutrafol is a very simple addition to your daily routine. Just four pills a day, and you'll begin to experience thicker, stronger, and faster-growing hair in just three to six months. As Nutrafol's powerful ingredients bring your body back into balance, you may also notice improvements to your overall well-being, including more restful sleep, less stress, and better skin and nails. And when you subscribe, you'll receive automatic monthly deliveries so you'll never miss a dose. You can get thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code MONICA to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L, Nutrafol.com, promo code MONICA. We'll be right back. We are back now with our final moments with Dr. Asim Mahotra. Let me just in our final um, time with you here, Asim, I want to go back to the actual effects of this mRNA uh, vaccine or shops because we did talk about cardiac events. By the way, you know, here in the U.S., Dr. Ladapo, who has been on the show, he's the Surgeon General in the state of Florida. He made a recommendation earlier this year that men, young men between the ages of 18 and 39, not get the shots. You have also recommended that we need to stop it wholesale across the board from being administered. But is there a reason why men and particularly young men seem to be affected more by myocarditis and some of the other cardiac events than women? It's a great question. I don't know why. We don't know why men seem to be more affected by myocarditis. Having said that, it's certainly what's getting more publicity, but I have managed many vaccine-injured females who have developed what we call cardiomyopathy, where they've got impairment of their heart muscle pump function severely, um, who've actually had perimyocarditis as well. It does seem to be more prevalent in males, but it's certainly not something that doesn't happen to females as well. And then in terms of with heart attacks in general, Monica, certainly up until the menopause, men are much more likely to suffer from heart attacks than women. It tends to level out after the menopause. So that's something that's already there as a baseline. But in terms of just breaking down the information, I'm glad you brought this up because what I try to do with my paper through real world evidence, not through extrapolations, is to look at what the absolute benefit of the vaccine is in preventing a COVID death. And what we found is that if you look at the Delta variant from last year, which was certainly much more of a problem compared to the Omicron, 
if you're over 80, you had to vaccinate, say, 230 people to prevent one COVID death. If you were 70 to 80, 520. And then under 70, you start having to vaccinate thousands of people to prevent one COVID death, right? So that information wasn't part of the discussion with patients when, when it should be. The question is, what is the absolute harm? And the absolute harm, based upon the best available evidence, this is Pfizer and Moderna's own data, randomized control trial data where everything is corrected for. We're talking about a serious adverse event rate of at least 1 in 800. And when I say serious adverse event, I mean something that's life-changing, dis disability, hospitalization. You know, these include things like heart attacks and strokes. And that's at least 1 in 800 because that data is only relevant for the first two months after having the vaccine. My dad, for example, had his cardiac arrest probably because it accelerated heart disease in him six months after having the second shot. So that rate of, uh, of, of serious harm is about 1 in 800. You look at Omicron from earlier this year, you're talking about having to vaccinate several thousand people over the age of 80, the highest risk group to prevent one COVID death, and you'll go tens of thousands when you get younger. So it's a no-brainer that most people, if you told them that information, would not take the vaccine. But historically, we have suspended and pulled other vaccines for much less harm, absolute harms. 1976, swine flu vaccine was suspended because it caused Guillain-Barre syndrome in one in 100,000 people, a, a neurological, disabling neurological condition. Rotavirus vaccine 1999 suspended because it caused a form of a bowel obstruction in one in 10,000. We're talking of serious adverse event rate of at least one in 800. This is a no-brainer, Monica. It shouldn't even be debated. Now, people can say, hold on, it's an emergency use authorization vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. We're not in an emergency anymore. Even Biden has said that the pandemic is effectively over. Right. Omicron that's circulating now is no worse than a bad cold, right? For the over majority of people. We do not need to continue giving the same vaccine technology, this bivalent booster with the mRNA technology, which is clearly very problematic with very good mechanistic uh, evidence of how it harms different organ systems, et cetera. It, it's not even, to be honest, Monica, in normal circumstances, this wouldn't have been debated. Now, but the smoking gun for me is that the original trial data, which has been reanalyzed and not been rebutted, recently reanalyzed the trials that led to the approval of the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, revealed in those trials, one was more likely to suffer a serious adverse event from taking the vaccine and one was to be hospitalized with COVID. That it's suggests just, to me, it's incredible. That suggests yeah. to me it should never have been approved in the first place. Right. That's right. And by the way, it's still under emergency authorization use because the minute that they lift that, then these companies are legally liable for these injuries. In just our final moments with you, Asim, you know, we are seeing a spike in the number of excess deaths around the world since the debut of these shots in early 21. I want to get your, your view on whether or not these shots are actually suppressing the natural immune system. And that's why the more shots people get, the higher rate of symptomatic COVID hospitalizations and deaths. And we're also seeing a spike in the, the higher rates of cancer and other kinds of infections and things like that. Could it be that these shots are suppressing your natural immune system, your natural ability to fight off things like cancer and infections and so on? And that's why we're seeing higher rates of all of this. So hypothetically, yes, we do have some good data in the UK that certainly within the first few weeks of having the vaccines, there is, there does seem to be called negative efficacy. So people are more vulnerable to getting COVID, which suggests it does have some immunosuppressive effect, which again, you couldn't make up. I mean, that's just extraordinary. In terms of the excess deaths, Monica, the data is quite messy. So we need to be a bit more granular about trying to pick through that. 
What I can tell you, certainly in the UK, the British Heart Foundation recently announced that there were, since the pandemic, there have been 30,000 excess deaths specifically from coronary artery disease. And they've said recently this is not because of COVID. Now, with what we know of the mechanism of harm from the vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, absolutely this will be a factor. Is it the only factor? I don't think so. Is it a predominant factor? Almost certainly. So um, other things that are going to be contributing to excess deaths, certainly to some degree, there will be the post-lockdown effect of how lockdowns affected people psychologically in terms of their diet, lifestyle, economically. That will absolutely be playing a role. But can we say for sure that the vaccine almost certainly is involved in this issue of excess mortality, certainly from coronary artery disease? 100% yes. Mm. It is. It's, I mean, to me, when I take a step back and look at the last three years, I seem this looks more and more like a, a breathtaking crime against humanity. And we really need full, like a global investigation to get to the truth about COVID's origins, about the public health corruption, about the dangers of these shots, about what these officials, both in the UK, US, China, what they knew and when, and about the lies. And that's why I have been calling for a COVID accountability project. And if we are able to get one off the ground, you absolutely must be a part of it because you are one of those few very brave voices out there, Asim, just blowing the whistle just based on the data, not conspiracy theories or anything like that, but based on the facts and the data. Have you been approached in any way, shape or form by any either global institution or British institution or even American institution about uh, working with them in terms of uncovering what really happened here? Yeah, so I did actually give a talk in the British Parliament recently. So a number of Conservative Party, which is a current current government in power are, are the Conservative Party. They have the majority. Um, a number of those members of parliament have listened to my talk. They're taking it forward. I presented the data to them. I had a Norwegian politician I was in also recently who is now trying to get my data and get me in front of the Norwegian parliament. There's somebody else through the United Nations who's getting... So I think things are making progress. I will obviously continue to advocate for this because, you know, for me, uh, my primary responsibility is to scientific integrity to, and to patients. And you're right, I don't think this is about, you know, people can try and gaslight and say this is about conspiracy theories or anti-vax and that kind of thing. No, this is this is cold, hard facts. And it's also understanding how this happened, why this happened, and then offering solutions, Monica, as well, moving forward, which I've done in my paper. Uh, and one of the most obvious solutions is that the drug industry moving forward should not be allowed to test and then hold on to the data around the, the development of their drugs. The regulators shouldn't be certainly getting any money from industry. They should be independent. And I think political donations is a big issue in this country. You know, government should not be taking money from industry. They cannot. The, the primary purpose of government, one of the primary purposes of government is to protect their citizens from external aggressors and to protect their citizens from disease. And that means doing what's best for the interest of the mental and physical health of their population. And as long as the government's of the US or other governments around the world take money from pharma, they are not, they will not be able to do their job properly. And therefore they do not deserve to have the full trust of the public. And we don't want that situation to occur because we're ultimately talking about heading towards more and more chaos, less trust amongst of the public uh, towards their governments and towards each other. And that's not a great situation to be in. You know, as Jordan Peterson says, you know, truth is what redeems the world from hell. And the reason for that, Monica, is 
in order for us to function as a society progressively, we have to be able to trust each other. And we can only trust each other if people are speaking the truth. And this is a cultural problem as well. So I yes. think we have to go back to the very basics, even ourselves, is are we in our own lives acting honestly and virtuously? What are we teaching our kids? And are we holding our government accountable to make sure that they do their job properly as well when it comes to serving the public interest? Yes. And it is such a critical point, maybe the most critical point that we're ending with here, Asim, because you know there are a lot of very dark forces at work here, and the corruption runs so deep. And I want to thank you so much for joining me here today and for being a beacon of light in this darkness, also for your courage and your leadership on this, Asim. We are 100% behind you, so please keep going. Thank you, Monica. I greatly appreciate it. It has been absolutely terrific to have you here. Dr. Asim Mahotra, follow him on social media at Dr. Asim Mahotra. That is D-R-A-S-E-E-M-M-A-L-H-O-T-R-A. We so appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. God bless. Wow, guys, what an incredibly important show, right? There are courageous people out there like Asim willing to stand up to international power to tell the truth and save people along the way. So please tell everybody you know to listen to the show. It's that important. All right, guys, that's going to do it for me today. Thank you so much for being here, as always, and for visiting our great sponsors. We all really appreciate that. I will see you right back here on Friday with another big show. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.